Well, welcome back to the Social World Podcast. Nice to have your company today. Uh, it's been a bit of a while, but um, I'm sure it's worth it. And today, I'm going to do a special program for you. Occasionally, I uh, have guests along that are colleague professionals in the front line to do with safeguarding, different disciplines, different places. You'll appreciate some of the people that we've had as guests on before. Well, today, I'm very pleased to introduce Donna Odadar, who is the chief executive of Review Consulting, and she's the founder of that business as well, who do major reviews on child deaths, homicide, etc., and has been established in this kind of world, if you like, for quite some time, and so is very, very well versed in the landscape of safeguarding. Welcome to the program, Donna. Thank you. Thanks for having me, David. Oh, you're welcome. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Now, look, perhaps just for a moment or two, before we get to the bigger picture, you, you could talk a little bit about what Review Consulting does, just, just to sort of put context together, and then we'll take it away. Sure, thank you. Well, really, it boils down to two things. Um, we offer reviews and we offer training for reviewers. Mm-hmm. So that that it, it really is those two things, David. Um, and yeah, I'm, I, I can speak about reviews. I can speak more widely. So you um, kind of funnel me in the right direction. And I'm looking forward to kind yeah. of coming in. I think you're being extremely modest because you're very well thought of in the business. I know that. And and people do seek you out and seek out your help for some of the more complex and difficult reviews where children, unfortunately, have died or got seriously injured. However, I do want to sort of talk a little bit about the context of safeguarding today in the country and have a, 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 a if you like, a broader look at the social world. You've been doing this. I mean, your background is is a lawyer as well. So you've got all sorts of different disciplines coursing around your system. But have you seen many changes in the kind of landscape over the last few years in terms of who's doing what? Has the has the world improved in its way of protecting children? Or are we still struggling an awful lot? And not perhaps including people enough, not perhaps training people enough. I mean, what what's your general view of the landscape at the moment? Okay, well, that, we're going more macro now rather than the world of reviews because I think reviews are criticised for a lot of things, and we can definitely come to that later. But the organisations that we work with, we walk in. And we offer to give an independent view of of what's going on there. And there are two types of organisation that we might walk into, David. And one has kind of contracted around the situation. They're looking for compliance measures. They feel that they should be called to account. So there's kind of a fear-based atmosphere within the organisation and that makes it much more difficult to conduct a review. Mm-hmm. So those organisations are going to find it harder to improve their response to the things that that we're about to talk about, I think. So I think we need to sp- speak about the organisations and then speak about that journey. The second type of organisation that we might walk in 
to work with and we can sense the atmosphere immediately is a learning organization so instead of the contraction instead of looking to uh, kind of bang the fist on the table we have the courageous leader we have the leader who is ready to give that top-down blessing to to some learning we have the leader who says you know i really support you to to work with this you know this statutory framework actually that can feel really threatening um to look at how we can do things better so that's kind of an intro into um you know why why um organizations have to be very very astute to what you and i might see as an overview of this changing world Okay. Something that we've spoken about before is if you're in that kind of compliance overwhelm, if you're in review overwhelm, if you're in inspection overwhelm, how on earth are you as an organisation going to be able to respond to the fact that things are changing overnight? You know, the agendas that guests on your podcast have spoken about, um, you know, mm. with, with brand new um, world it's not so new, is it? But the response and the way we organise ourselves to county lines, the response and the way we organise ourselves to problems like human trafficking and modern slavery. How are these organisations going to be supremely nimble and astute if they've got all this overwhelm um, that they're trying to deal with as well, which is quite nitpicky, quite tick-boxy, about trying to... um, kind of deal with this compliance overwhelm so that that's kind of um where reviews lead me into with what we expect from our organizations and from our professionals and our front line okay let's deconstruct that a bit because i think you're opening up some really interesting doors there okay the first organization the compliance um one that you mentioned is just reliance on compliance if you like Effectively, um, and the one that has more of a learning attitude, and I know that's the one you favour. But the first one, what would you say are the barriers of the first one? Uh, those that aren't really as learning orientated as you would like. Is it an issue to do with pressure, central government, resources, staffing, is it to do with the number of agency people that are employed as opposed to full-time uh, employed people? Is it an issue to do with not understanding, as you said, the new complex world of safeguarding and some of the issues you mentioned there to do with county lines or to do with anti-slavery, human trafficking, whatever, the new world of safeguarding? Or is it just the people themselves that some leaders are better than others? Is it as simple as that? Yeah, I think it's all of those things, of course. It's the context that they're operating in. But also, there is a huge amount of pressure. There's a huge amount of pressure, isn't there, to to behave courageously when we've got these interfaces. You know, um, we've got media expectation. Mm -hmm. We've got um, kind of interfaces with the family court, the criminal court, um, expectation, coroners, um, and I think mm. the courageous leader 
is the one perhaps who is supported. So many leaders aren't supported, aren't they? They're in a fearful place. You know, I'm expected to 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 show that I'm being accountable here. I'm expected to mm. uh, show compliance measures. What isn't expected is that I'm there to to support the front line. I'm there to create the conditions for them to do what they do best, because all of those soft skills that are embedded in the front line and that we we can't measure them we can't tick them off as a kpi can we but we want to protect those we want to um we want to support the front line to do what they do best and the leader who can stand there and hold two dualities that that leader can say this is absolutely tragic and we are absolutely committed to learning from this um yeah. and, and also hold that hold the other duality of being supportive to the front line and and to show that top-down blessing for the procedures and the processes that that are going to follow i don't know the 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 stats for something like this but i can't help thinking that there is what would be called a sort of a churn a high a high turnover in senior management and local authority social services and uh, I can't help thinking that that has some kind of an impact on the culture of the organization and the, um, as you talked about, you know, the ability to become a learning organization as much as just a compliance organization. I, I do think that there is an enormous turnover and I'm sure there's all sorts of reasons for that. And I do understand the issue of resources, the issue of support, the issue of lack of funding, local authorities and so on. And perhaps even the lack of, recognition of the importance of safeguarding nationally i don't know but generally speaking would you agree that 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 turnover is a problem too i think it's something that should receive our attention to you because we speak about churn and turnover um on the front line but we don't really speak about this in an intuitive way about the leaders um and you know i could i think we we in the world of reviews my own profession um you know, have some responsibility here because what are the messages that we're hearing? You know, we've got a lot of judgmental wording and cliches that come out. There was a lack of professional curiosity, all these missed opportunities, uh, the missed chances. Why is it happening again? And it's not what, you know, we can point the finger obviously so easily in the direction of the media. But what about our own reviews in terms of being judgmental? These are the uh, this is what a, a leader who is in fear is in fear of what that report's going to say about his organ his or her organisation, isn't it? So they're handcuffed essentially by the uh, expectations of um, being judged. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, all right. No, um, you covered so many so much ground there I, I, I mean i i think what we've got to do is what about the modern you mentioned county lines for example there is an enormous amount of work being done about that but do you feel in your own judgment because you're in touch with many local authorities and many kind of different employers do you feel that it's being done adequately it's being um, um, talked about and communicated about enough are there enough initiatives out there to try and challenge and stop children being sucked into this 
first of all, I think we, I think there's something that um, within within all of us, um, perhaps do we feel insufficiently expert? Do we feel that we're looking for somebody to tell us what to do? So we've been in this compliance culture, and what we want is that really safe framework. Um, you know, we can. So I remember David speaking on LinkedIn in September to say, I've got four consultations to respond to. They're all sitting on my desk and they're all important to me. And I've got four of them to respond to. So there's mm-hmm. there's, there's frameworks coming in and, and, and measures coming in for everything. So when um, a set of circumstances lands that has the tag county lines, perhaps it's um, perhaps it's a review. Perhaps it's a brand new case that lands and people are really kind of ready to say, I'm not an expert. And we're kind of waiting for structures to catch up. So um, for child sexual exploitation, for instance, it's kind of nine years ago that we were talking about, we're going to organise ourselves differently. We're going to create hubs. And then, of course, following the um, review into Star and Arthur's case, there's now going to be uh, a brand new style of hub. But do we have to wait to co-locate? Do we have to wait to organise ourselves into hubs? Do we have to wait to decide that we're an expert? Or can we dive in with confidence about our relational skills um, to, to decide that, yes, we are sufficiently expert and we are equipped to to tackle this. Because if we wait and we wait and we wait, um, you know, we are just continuing with this compliance culture that we need a framework and we need everybody to organise themselves in a different way. I think you're right. And in in respect, too, of um, this business about needing permission to change, I think effectively over the years I've seen many, many, many initiatives either run into the dust or be drawn out for so long that people forget the original kind of source material that caused us to have this change and therefore it's less impactful. Um, I I do worry, I mean, the county lines, just, just for anybody listening and certainly our friends abroad, um, county lines is to do with children being used by organised crime or in, in transporting drugs and sector, et cetera, et cetera, from one part of the country to another and actually being exploited, groomed and um, effectively criminalised by people for, for financial gain. And um, it's become quite uh, an epidemic, if you like, that is being tackled well in some places and not so well in others. And I think that's part of the patchwork that uh, you were referring to the hesitancy in terms of taking in initiatives. Maybe what about... Might, might I say, to balance that, that mm. I'm not here to oversimplify this. I'm not here to not acknowledge the barriers. So I don't know. Um, reviewers come to me for supervision and I'll say, what we're looking for here, for, for instance, with county lines, is we, we're looking to dissolve barriers. We're looking for agencies to have more and more mechanisms to to speak with each other. It's essentially that. It boils down to that. Um, And, of course, the pandemic removed um, 
many of the you know it was it was an unintentional um outcome from the pandemic that we started doing a lot more virtually so that over a cup of tea conversation um by being in the same room together um removed agencies coming together where they might say and and what about this what about this situation you know so you try in county lines very often what we need is a is a huge overview across agencies to um you know look at the network look at look at what's going on and that's that's becoming increasingly hard to do as we do more and more in silo and in in isolation so we we're looking to dissolve barriers aren't we absolutely increase um, conversations well you put your finger on it you, and you've talked several times referring to essentially what is multi-agency working and the fact that over the years if there's one thing that people have learned is don't do things on your own um something is much better shared talked about and you can get a much more accurate picture of people's circumstances or of an event that might have gone wrong but essentially, at the end of the day, I mean, you, you're a lawyer uh, in background as well. I, I love this conversation you've had about um, experts and stuff like that and be, accepting you're an expert. Social workers for years, if you half of them would say, if they asked, are you an expert witness? They would say no. But of course they are. They're an expert in social work. And, and, and therefore they would almost kind of diminish their professional standing by not recognizing that fact. And I kept bashing on about that for such a long time. And it's just a bit about, a little bit reminded me when you were saying that people should just not seize the day as much as, but actually stand up to the mark about what they're capable of offering and not hide it. Absolutely, David. I don't, have you seen any, uh, so community care undertook a survey um, of, of social workers and guardians. I wish I'd brought the precise mm. percentage to to this conversation, um, but it's worth looking up in community care. The percentage of social workers and garden, guardians who feel completely undermined in the family courts and that their opinion wouldn't stand up um, if, if it were contradicted, for instance, um, with, a, with an independent psychological report. Mm. I know. Um, yeah, I, I remember it well when I was in practice and managing teams of social workers and so forth. Um, I, I remember sort of the, the, the culture was that the, if there was a large court, a long court case, the social worker would go along every day and just sit there, wait to be called. Whereas somebody like a pediatrician would actually sort of send a message to the court saying, I'll be available from three till four on Friday afternoon. Yes. That was it. You know, I mean, it it, 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 it it is how society treats you, but at the same time, it's also how you treat yourself and how you think of yourself. And I, I do I do believe that. And that's why it resonated with me, what you were saying earlier. So if public perception is based on media reporting on the work of the sector, let's take, for example, the recent reporting of the Sarah Sharif case. So Sarah was sadly murdered in August 2023, and there's been some recent reporting of that. Now, what was selected to be reported from what I've seen gave the impression that review activity would take place, 
the sense was that it was would happen behind closed doors because it couldn't be spoken about until after the murder trial next autumn and I know why that happens and you know why this happens David but the wider public doesn't the wider public doesn't know that what we're all trying to do is not put the criminal justice process into jeopardy and that there are all sorts of pressures um, around speaking about the, the you know the review activity but I believe there's another way and if we were more regularly permitted to elicit and publish some headline learning areas that agencies were instantly implementing, it's without prejudice to any outcomes, we'd be far more transparent, we would be showing accountability to the public, and this seems an easy win. It would dissolve some of these barriers, and I think it would really help. Do you think that the, um, maybe you can comment a bit on this from your legal background as well, but I mean, do, do you think that people these days are far more professionals, are far more worried as well about legal challenge to things and therefore they want every single I dotted, every single T crossed, um, because essentially practice challenge is a very real thing for a frontline worker. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know if that's got worse or if it just always was there. But so, for instance, straight away, um, you know, when we want to conduct a review, there's this there's, the, there's a, a fear based um, reaction. Perhaps if there's tandem criminal proceedings, is this going to is this mm. going to in some way prejudice us securing a conviction? Mm. So there's all of that fear. There's all of that contraction around. You know, we can't talk about this. We can't open this up. We can't do this because of data protection. And of course, these are the environments that that we're all operating in, which lend itself to, to us looking like we are fear based and we do want to keep it all secret. And you forget, yeah, people forget we're part of a wider community, a much and much bigger community than than those of us involved in, in the actual kind of safeguarding world. Who, who look and judge us. Sure. And we might do that across professions, haven't we? Well, yeah. exactly, exactly. Donna, I remember, oh, years ago, and on and on and on, I keep on bashing this one. Local authorities who are, let's be honest, the main employers of safeguarding profession, social workers, anyway, um, essentially often confuse confidentiality with secrecy. Okay. And in effect, that's exactly what you were tapping into, I think, there. The idea that, well, what the heck's wrong with asking somebody what being in care was like for them if they're now an adult and can make their own mind up about discussing it? Well, what about all the success stories that do go on as well that we need to get out to the media and all its forms because we, we never seem to talk about that because everybody's terrified that they're going to breach confidentiality. Well, there's so many things that can be talked about in my view that do not to be need to be kept secret. And let's be honest, the media loves nothing more than secrets to dig into. And so if you give the appearance of something being secret rather than 
genuinely confidential, then then they'll they'll, they'll swarm all over you. I think that's. I think you hit the nail on the head of potentially what's happened in Surrey there as to why we're all thinking something's going to happen behind closed doors. It all sounds a bit seedy to me. Mm. That that won't be the situation at all, but that's what comes across. Yeah. And I'm feeling like the most so in social media, you know, I, I'm I'm on LinkedIn a lot. The courageous sharing is happening more from people. You know, I follow some really inspirational care experience individuals, and they talk about what it's like to um, to read their records and to read some of this language that's recorded about them. And some of the most insightful shares, I think, currently are happening from those individuals where we, we're really hearing um, the lived experience of this. Because, I mean, you talk about this widely, David. It's really hard when you're employed by an organisation to, to speak about anything because of this contraction around it not being, we can't talk about it. We mm. can't talk about the, the day-to-day uh, work that we're doing. I know. I'd love to. I'd, I mean, I, I know eventually somebody will hear us, but I'd love to see more social workers and even you know, frontline, you call them the blue light. I mean, being asked onto programmes to talk about the good work that they've done, <laughs> the success stories. And so that tomorrow, when somebody has to go out on a new case where it looks all very dramatic and a child might well be at risk, it helps people get over the doorstep and, and trust people, you know, to work with them rather than be hugely suspicious because all they've ever seen in the media that these blue light people do is actually criticise you, challenge you, take you to court and take your children away. And so, you know, the, the whole thing becomes a sort of a cycle of uh, misinformation and suspicion. And um, I really, I really know that it's not like that, but we've got to be able to tell people. So can we, can we use today as a, as a, a challenge to, to those who, you know, who describe themselves as responsible media to, to show an interest in that as well, rather than only showing an interest in scandal, secrecy, uh, we we want we want media who are interested in that too, don't we? Of course we do. I I, I do think in 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 real terms though, um, the media will only be interested in what sells. Um, okay. So so whether it's um, broadcast, written, social, and whatever kind of media it is, the, the, the people want them to read it or watch it or whatever. And so, saying you know, well, I had a nice time today. That smacks a, a, a bit of what the editors would be reluctant to do. However, I think we should break up the media and not necessarily national media, but let's talk about local media, the local radio station, the commercial radio station or the local free newspaper, the journalists that happen to live in your patch. These are people I'd love to be suggesting that people get in touch with and do what we're we're talking about. because. You know, they've all got an, a voracious appetite for content, and this is good content. So, anyway. do you know, you've, so I'm, I'm really um, interested in the kind of what the day-to-day looked. So what would it look like 
to share some day-to-day stuff. And if I'm in my, I'm back to LinkedIn again, it sounds like I'm a promoter of LinkedIn. If I'm looking at my <laughs> LinkedIn feed, it is uh, head of service saying, really enjoyed this presentation today. And we might have a shot of the uh, the PowerPoint. And it was really great to get together with X, Y, and Z organization today to discuss X, Y, and Z agenda. So I think there is an appetite to do this in safe places because we know we've only accepted connections with somebody on LinkedIn that's not going to say, oh, you're all having a jolly then, are you? I don't know. It feels like people want to do this. They've got an appetite to celebrate what they're doing and there'll be somebody else on LinkedIn saying, oh, can I share in what you did um, locally on X, Y, and Z? I do think there's an appetite for this, but I think there's fear as well about how it's going to be twisted. Yeah, and and to be fair too, and you and I know this both, I mean, the LinkedIn community is is not the most um, unreceptive uh, uh, that there is, but the the, the wider community and those that might use X or or other social media platforms or whatever. Yeah, yeah. are far more judgmental, I think, and far more swayed by, heaven forbid, we become like um, the American public is at the moment with um, how they're dealing with the world. But effectively, I worry about our future because 95 to 98% of the population gets its information and its opinions from some kind of media or another. And therefore, if you're not, in that shop window, you've got a great chance of being misrepresented. Okay. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting overview, actually. And I'm not as familiar with X. No, but I mean, like, you know, Twitter is what I meant. You know, yes, absolutely. As was. Um, okay, look, let's move on a little bit because we've got about another five or ten minutes and I, I, I still need to hear one or two things from you because... I know that you're, if you like, an experienced professional and you've seen quite a lot your way, but you've had to be dealing with your world a lot and not had possibly as much time as you would like in actually looking at the wider issues. But what kind of vision would you say you have uh, for the future of, of how we deal with protecting our vulnerable people? Well, I'm looking for a brand new focus. So I don't underestimate that this is, um, it's ambitious and Mm. it requires dedicated time and attention. So in my opinion, if the, so we've spoken about leaders, Mm. if there was a new focus for leaders, if there was a new focus for um, reviews in which we fostered an appreciative culture rather than, you know, this deficit culture, this compliance culture, this looking for blame, um, I think we could make great strides. And I'll, I'll, I'll illustrate this. I'll show some of my failures um, as I've tried to, to implement this in my own professional life as well, David. So. Cool. Back in 2019, I decided, you know, it was time to change the world of reviews. And I studied, I worked with a leading author because I wanted to pull through 
four strands into reviews, which, um, you know, were strengths focused, solutions focused, appreciative inquiry, um, solution focused mm-hmm. brief uh, therapy. There were there were many many ideas that were coming through, which were saying, look, between leaders and teams, this really works. We've got a research base for this working. And I decided that right, okay, reviews. We, we're going to we're going to implement this into reviews, and some of it was really messy. So some of it was me walking into a deficit culture where everybody's decided to talk about what was going wrong um, and not p- really bringing people along every step along the way. Yeah. Um, me trying to bring it into training where reviewers themselves have been really interested in only focusing on what went wrong and thinking that that's how we're accountable. But I think if we um, if we were really interested in creating learning and creating um, organizations that are more balanced around learning from what went well and um, discussing more widely what went well. I think that's the way that we make great strides. And I had to embed a brand new model that asked different style of questions from the start, not just trying to bring it in at the end. So we had to ask different questions to set up the review in a certain way. We had we we um, brought in this expert so that the reviewers could operate with a script at first, um, with the idea that then later on they'd be able to throw away the script because it became more automatic. So mm-hmm. it's not something that people can just flip their thinking overnight, but some people are more strengths focused than others, um, just naturally. And we did. We, there is a there is a quiz that we offer as well, David. We could put it in the show notes if people are interested in understanding how strengths focused they automatically are in their lives. Okay. Okay. Good stuff. Now, look, I want to, let's just get this dealt with before we finish. I I want to make sure that on the text part of this podcast, I put up as many links as you wish to, you know, remind people what you've been talking about, to talk about review consulting, of course, but also anything else that you think has been relevant and about what's coming up or, and so on. I know you've been doing some, uh, giving some talks recently nationally um, to open forum events and so forth, all about, you know, your work. I need to tell people what you're doing. I want to be able to reflect you, Donna, in terms of that. So can we promise people about how to get in touch with you, what to look at, where your LinkedIn is, all the different kind of connection things you've got. We will put as text on the front and links on the front of this podcast. Um, is that okay? Absolutely. And, you know, essentially, if people are, are interested in working with me, they might be interested in a review that is proportionate, it's engaging and has a strengths focus. Those are the three elements of why you might want to work with me or my team when it comes to reviews. And then the second strand which we spoke about is training and development for those blue light professionals who know that they have something to offer for the world of reviews as well. So people will come and work with me um, to explore. It might be a second career. It might be that they're thinking about their retirement plan. They might want to um, reduce their hours in their professional role and do some independent work as well. Or they might want to skill up in their own roles, because don't forget, David, we've got all these quality insurance professionals 
um, and we've got our designated nurses, designated doctors, mm. we've got heads of service in social care, we've got many, many police experts who work with vulnerable people who might just want to skill up in this because um, they want to perform better and make their contribution to reviews better. Um, so mm. those are the main reasons that somebody might like to work with me. And of course, we will uh, make sure the show notes reflect how people can do that. Okay. I think for me, the one thing that came across there is um, the quality of training you're talking about is correct. The quality of training that you're talking about is what's needed. It does happen in very in, in, in several places. However, what I think people see and what frustrates them sometimes is, and maybe it's not the reviews that review consulting is doing, maybe, you know, because there are, of course, there are other reviewers available, um, is that when the kind of reports come out, Often it says, not necessarily in so many words, but we need more training. This review shows that we need more training. And and, and to, to the public, that doesn't really fit, you know, what they need to hear, in my view. I think they need more adult explanation. They need more contextual sort of stuff to us to say, well, look, you know, this training is partly what you've just outlined, the different disciplines that need it, but also the the quality of training needs to be much more, I don't know, much more impactful. I I I just don't think that the generic kind of words that have sometimes come out of reviews in the past reflect it. And I know that you're quite positive about this as well, aren't you? Absolutely. You know, when I, I left my role as head of law because I saw that leaders were constantly having to juggle priorities. And I saw the review as this as something that had the, re, the, the ability to flip it all. The review had the ability to say, no, this is now a priority. I'm sorry, but the rest of the things are going to have to um, fall to the, to, you know, to a lower priority while we all focus on this. And that was what really um, lit me up, David, enough to leave behind all that safety and structure as head of law. Mm -hmm. So I still believe and I stand by it today. So that was 2009. I stand by it today in 2023. The review has the power to be hugely influential, but it's a tool that's that's not always used so well. So we do have the repeated same recommendations. We do have this idea that it's just easy to train, train it away, train this problem away and we'll be fine. Um, but that places so much um, pressure <laughs> on somebody who walks away from a day's training is then expected to implement that every single day and remember it. Um, so I think we, if without a framework, without that um, community around you when you're a reviewer and you're just sitting alone which is me back in 2009 without a framework without a community without what I would call supervision I think it's easier to try and just jump in with those easy kind of cliches that says multi-agency working could have been better it's not very helpful no no I, I, I get it and that's what I remembered you saying before but I did want you to say it again for the audience Donna, it's been a pleasure, as always, talking with you. And um, I think it's inevitable we're going to talk again. Thanks ever so much for your time. And, um, oh, blimey, uh, ever good wishes for you for the future. 
because I know that you're going to play a significant part. And thank you for your time. Thank you so much, David. I'm looking forward to it all. Thank you. All right.